Welcome to Dance Through the Lens, the podcast designed for parents whose children have a passion for dance. We understand the unique joys and challenges of supporting young dancers. And in this podcast, we'll share insights, tips, and heartwarming stories from fellow dance parents and experts. Whether you're a seasoned dance parent or just starting on this journey, join us as we navigate the world of dance together. Now, here are your hosts, Whitney Collins and Katie Hughes. This podcast episode contains sensitive topics that may be triggering or distressing to some listeners. We believe it is important to address these issues openly in order to create awareness and promote a safer environment within the dance community. In today's episode, we will be discussing mental health, abuse of minors, and past cases of grooming and sexual abuse. We understand that these topics can be difficult to hear, especially for dance teachers and parents who want to ensure the well-being and safety of their students and children. If you feel that this content may be too overwhelming for you, we encourage you to prioritize your own mental health and well-being and consider skipping this episode. However, if you choose to listen, we hope that this discussion can provide valuable insights, resources, and support for those who may have experienced or witnessed such situations. Remember, you are not alone, and together we can work towards a safer and healthier dance community. Hey, Katie, how are you doing? Hi, Whitney. I'm doing well. How are you? I am so good, and I am so excited to introduce our guest, Stephen Karajinas, today. Hey, Stephen, how are you? Doing great. How are you? I am so excited to have you, and I'm so excited to introduce you to our audience. Thank you. Yep, so Stephen is a... Go ahead and tell us, give, give us your introduction in a nutshell. So I'm a physician who focused, I got trained in primary care sports medicine, but I started working in performing arts medicine about 2007, 2008, hardcore. I've been doing a lot of focused work on dance medicine ever since. Awesome. And I met Stephen over the summer, actually at a dance conference. It was just really cool because Stephen is associated with a group called NEMA. And do you want to tell us what that stands for? So it's Nonprofit Education and Advocacy for Movement Artists. And so we do a lot of advocacy work for the uh, mental health and well-being of performing artists, movement artists. Uh, it was focused on dance before. But we expanded it to like gymnasts, rhythmic gymnasts, and, and figure skaters and other performers who are at risk for abuse in many different ways. And what was so neat about this this conference, it was a conference for dance photographers. And every single photographer that was part of this conference had to go through um, a talk with Nima and just really make sure that everybody was super on board with just what all is involved with really taking care of these kids. Cause all of our models were under 18. Yeah. The thing is about like, when you talk about like, you know, abuse, as far as like, you know, the issues of, of being very dancer centric, most folks have not been that way in the dance world for, for a very, very long time. And so when we talk about dancer centric care for them, we're talking about taking care of their mind, body, and spirit. And so one of the things that gets blown over a lot is taking advantage of these dancers physically for like photography and sexually and emotionally. And sexual abuse has been a very hot topic in the last few years. And there's been lots of abuses coming out to the forefront now because people are more uh, emboldened to speak about this. And so problem is we're talking about all these different cases of, of abuse and, and uh, obviously with the Me Too movement and with the different things in Hollywood, it's been at the forefront of all different media publications, but how do you identify it? 
are you doing abuse by accident? We've had different dance teachers talk about how they feel horribly embarrassed. Like when they realize I've been trained to do this all my life and this is abuse and I get it now. And other course, other cases where it's actually more egregious. But even in photography, the reason why I met you, Whitney, is because I was brought in to talk about the basics of a dance shoot. And when I talk about dancer centric, uh, we're not saying the dancers in charge, but we're trying to keep the focus of the dancers' well-being in the forefront. So uh, having a dancer stand there for hours upon end and doing backbends over and over until the photographer gets the right shot or having the, the dancer doing different poses that makes them vulnerable, but not allowing them to see it and those kinds of things. And also the relationships with photographers and dancers should be very personable, but not personal. It shouldn't be like, okay, let's go over here and shoot something in the corner here. I got a great idea for a shoot for you. And the problem is it's not regulated, right? I mean, I can anybody can go out and start doing dance photography uh, tomorrow just by bringing a camera out there and saying that they do that. So what I wanted to do at this conference was to highlight these issues, dancer safety, taking care of them from an emotional standpoint, making sure they're comfortable with the whole thing, keeping the dancer at the forefront of what you're doing keeping them centered to what you're doing, the reason why you're there in the first place, and uh, trying to avoid these situations where, you know, these dancers aren't talking 10 years from now about a bad experience with a photographer. This is so interesting. And I love, you know, Whitney, I know that you're always really quick to put some of your certifications and some of your professional development out for the public to see on their Instagram and by reputation, that's how that's how I found you. But Stephen, I'm wondering for the parents that are just getting into the dance world or just kind of thinking about investing in photographs for their for their young performing artist, what are some questions that you recommend parents ask to know that it's not someone just picking up a camera? and going for it, that they're actually have gone through these kind of trainings that you're discussing? Well, the trainings are very new. This is definitely something where like dance photography, it was pretty stunning to us that we were asked to do this because we never knew there was a dance photography conference. And I was so excited because I do dance photography on the side. So most folks can look me up very easily and see that, you know, my, my day job is as a sports medicine, dance medicine physician. So so that's already out there. But as far as like getting this idea of certifications and those kind of things, that's what we're working towards doing because for if you're a parent, first thing you want to get is references. You know, who have you shot before? Who have you worked with before? So that then people can look up others and get information on them. That's the first thing I would do is ask about who have you shot before and who are you working with and get the references. Background check, not everybody has to do that because again, anybody can go become a photographer. But if well, hopefully people who are doing more work intensely in the field will get background checks so they can display that for people. But then the other thing too is, is asking about, okay, what kind of shots, poses, how much do we do interact with you as far as planning out to shoot? And hopefully, in all honesty, what I, what I look for is making sure the photographer has more questions for you than the parent has for the photographer. Because if this is a good photographer that you can work with and feel comfortable with, they're going to ask you a lot of questions about what you guys want, what the dancer wants, what year are you, what, how, how much experience do you have, what styles of dance are you looking, are you, do you do, how much experience do you have doing these things, and what are you looking for in these pictures, what's the goal of these pictures? These are important things for a photographer to get, and a lot of times they don't. They just kind of say, okay, I look at you, I see this, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And a lot of times 
the dancer, what we were dancers trained to do. They're trained to listen to the teachers and uh, the ballet instructors, and they just do what they're told. So if you're getting photographed and then they start saying, okay, I want you to wear this. I want you to do this. I want you to do this split. I want you to do this kind of thing. They're not going to say, no, I feel uncomfortable typically. So one in trying to empower the dance parents and dancers to do is take that agency. This is your shoot. Yeah, You are the subject of this. So you should be in charge of this. You know, they're, they're, they're the experts as far as photography, lighting and aperture, shutter speed and all that stuff. But it's about you. You're not comfortable. You should have somebody there, parent, hopefully, to make sure you can talk to them and help make that photographer understand you're not comfortable. Have agency be able to, and, and have a comfortable relationship established beforehand so that you can have the kind of shoot that you want and feel safe. You know, when I first started, Katie, I did a model call on Facebook and I was coming from being a, a teacher. So I had a background check. I was, you know, certified by the state of Georgia. Like, there are lots of hoops that you jump through in being an educator. So all of that was really very on the forefront of my mind. And when, like, when I first started talking to Steven, I'm like, you are like my guy. Like we talked all about it and got really kind of in the weeds, but I was just starting and I like, nobody knew me. I didn't have a reputation. So I made sure that the parent knew like, you are required to stay if there's anything that you don't feel comfortable doing. Because I like, Stephen, how you're saying it's not even just about discomfort emotionally. It's also about like physically, it can be physically dangerous for these kids. Yeah. Imagine trying to get that leap, mm-hmm. right? And the kid doesn't get the leg up, right? And then, uh, or there's a teacher there like, you know, no, nope, not good. No, nope, mm-hmm. not good. Do it again. No, no, no. All of a sudden, like we, by the time you think about it, or like, oh, shoot, my, my aperture is off. Oh, shoot, the light. You know what? Hold on, let me get that light set up. Stay in that position right there. Stay in your back bend. Let me move this light around here. Okay, mm-hmm. I think it's like I'm there. Are you, you know, oh, you okay? Fine. Yeah, yeah, you're okay. Fine. And then it's in, you know, the girl walks up, walks away like she's, you know, 65 years old. So it's just being cognizant of that, being aware. Like if you can't get the jump or leap after like five, six times, you move on. We did talk about that, Whitney, on our last podcast about some of the things in the studio that are indications that safety has been considered. And so initially, when I think about a dancer like jumping on a tumble track, right, to get the jump, sometimes I'm like, oh, that's kind of cheating. But then Whitney explained to me, no, it's not cheating. It's actually the dancers doing the jump. There's not a ton of suspension given from that tumble track. It's really just to protect their joints so that they don't have impact repeatedly doing the same thing until we get the shot because it's really minor adjustments to get that perfect shot. One of the things, Stephen, that you said that really resonated with me to like bring that, to bring it back is when the photographer has more questions for the parent, like what are you going to use these photos for? And that's something that Whitney, we've been working with the performing artists when they're doing audition photos or they're doing packaging photos to have that sense of being client centered so that the dancer can be able to advocate. Like I like when I pose like this, or I like when my left foot is the working foot or my right foot's the supporting foot, because if we're using these as packages, what we're saying is that we're preparing to send our dancer away where they're not going to have a parent in the room. And we're giving that that initial sense of agency that their voice does matter and that they can kind of, you know, they don't 
they don't typically speak to their teacher. Like you said, Stephen, when they're told right. do this, they do it. Um, right. And that's, and they're, they're so trained to listen and obey. I mean, it's, it's ingrained in them. Like sports medicine started, you know, in, in earnest, like 30 years ago this year, when we got certifications in place for sports medicine, but sports medicine around that time before that was all hand-me-down information. You know, the sport way that, you know, that wrestlers dealt with like cutting weight to get to a meet is, you know, you did, you know, you did what you wanted to do beforehand. And then like a few days beforehand, you got into a rubber suit and you sweated your brains out and you just cut weight very sharp. And then you gorged right after the weigh-in to get back up again. And people died. And finally they started realizing from the research, hey, that's not safe. And so you get all this information that was handed me down to change to research and evidence-based medicine that supports it. And dance medicine is about 20, 25 years behind that because sports medicine has much more money going into it for research. And dance medicine is coming up. But when you talk about, you know, the idea of like, oh, like when a teacher says, you know, they are taught, my, my mentor taught me this, and therefore we're doing this. That's, it's more ingrained in teams in the dance world. It was like that in the sports world for a long time. My coach was Bear Bryant, and this guy taught me this, and therefore I'm teaching you this. But dance world is like, it's so, because there's not much else for research, resource. There's no, not much else to tell a person, this is what, you know, this is actually better. Great example is, you guys ever like run a marathon or, you know, play team sports, and, right? So yeah. we, we run a marathon when you're training, Two weeks before you get your big run in the 20 mile run or so, and then you have two weeks of tapering, right? Basketball, pro basketball, they have a shoot around day before a game. Are you practicing before the game? No, just shooting around. Uh, football, you have you're in you're in uh, you're it's a walkthrough day before a game. You're not hitting, not exerting yourself. You're saving energy up. And dance, what's dance like? Well, you get choreography set, and then you do your choreography. You work it, work it, work it. Then you clean it, clean it, clean it. Then you get the tech rehearsals. You do more dress rehearsal, dress rehearsal, dress rehearsal, dress rehearsal. Then you got the show. Bam, bam, bam. By the time they're done with the show, they're like, most of the time I talk to these dancers, they're like, I'm just glad it's over. I'm just, <laughs> I'm, just I'm exhausted. Because See, my language, the periodization of a dancer is right. Critical. Periodization, exactly. There's right. No periodization none of it. whatsoever in any pedagogy that I've ever looked at. None. And it's critical because dance is creeping into a year-long sport. Right. And, and, and think about and think about what happens like with the choreographer. Like, so why are they doing so much work right before the performance? Uh, right before a convention? It's usually because they're changing things. After all this time, they finally realize, man, you know what? I think I think she belongs on the right side and she belongs on the left side. And I think he belongs in the second row right before the show, right before the performance. So that a lot of this is fear-based. Like if we don't run it over and over and over right before they do it, they're going to forget it. And I'm not saying don't do anything, but like, again, when you're running a marathon, the longest run you do during your tapering week is eight miles and you're doing it for two weeks and then you run 26. And I ran a marathon, I ran the Boston Marathon and uh, I didn't forget how to run. I got through it. I ran that protocol. And football players, they hit just as hard on Saturdays when they don't hit on Friday. But it's a fear-based thing and obviously traditional as well that is, I need needs to change because, it's, I mean, I see it all the time. Dancers are like, how the show go this weekend? Well, I got through it. I'm like, I should be like, 
oh my god it was heavenly it was divine it was it was transcendent it was amazing i, I felt like i was no no they're like i just got through it well one of the things i hope to see in changing is more double casting because i think as we double cast then we are able to kind of like rotate through roles no matter how small the company is i think it gives other people more right. opportunities to work different muscles different artistry I, I also hope that that gives them some like mental mental uh, exactly and some physical breaks by using the practice of double casting and i've also noticed that it's the larger conventions on the mainstream dance competition side that are doing a lot of those like really long long days and those really like constant running it changed me when we went to the ballet uh, centric competitions like we mm -hmm. went to YGP, UBC, and that's very different culturally. Like you don't see a bunch of tutus in the lobby running their dances 15 times before they put their variation on. Those students kind of walk in with their headphones, their warm ups, their marking, their stretching, their, you know, they do their class in the morning, but they're not running their variation at all. Um, right. Until they go to open stage. Can I just say that my hair and makeup artist has a dancer, and I think she's like nine or ten. And last competition season, she was on stage. I want to say at like seven in the morning, and right. she was on stage again at like nine or ten at night. I mean, I, that's a whole lot. And you have class, and this is three or four days in a row, and it just seems like an awful lot. And that's common. 7 a.m. to midnight, very common for these conventions. And a lot of times it's just because they're trying to pack in more people because more people means more money. Yeah. I do like that that's a conversation that I think some very like conscious competitions are employing the one solo per artist athlete, which means that the judges aren't going to see that dancer do four solos, which extends the day. So I do appreciate that. And I also appreciate the ones that are really putting those values at the forefront on their homepage of their website. Like, you know, we do give our judges breaks. We do guarantee an end by 10. We don't start before eight. And then they talk about the uh, noise that they're going to be using with their sound system because I come with my family and one of the protective equipment is not just the knee pads, the stretching, the bands, the water and the snacks, but it's also the ear protectors for my children who are sitting in the audience all day. Those competitions are loud. I'm very proud of that because I wrote the first articles I've ever read about that in 2017 in the dance magazine. And I was inspired to write this article about decibels in dance competitions when I went and measured decibels at a big time convention and the decibels at the stage were 119 and a gunshot, a shotgun is 125. So you're allowed to be able to hear that for about three to about 15 seconds safely before you have hearing injury. So that's been very gratifying to see the bridge dance project, which I'm part of and you're part of as well, Katie, as you know, have, we've done work with that, putting documents out for that. And I think that one of the things I'm very proud of with what the bridge dance project has done so far is get that word out. You shouldn't have 100 decibels blasting every dang day in the studio. You don't need it to be that loud all the time. And it's the constant exposure that gets you because when they're dancing on stage, those dancers are behind the speakers 
they don't get the full exposure. That's the audience for that whole weekend. What you <laughs> mentioned, that gets like the, the sound blasting in their face for 12 hours at a time. So, so hopefully, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot to change that. It just takes a little bit of awareness and just being, you know, common sense using high fidelity earplugs. Now mm-hmm. they can get the, you can get the high frequencies coming through through the high pass filter in those, uh, those uh, earplugs. And so you can hear everything in detail. It's just 15 to 20 decibels lower. So this is why live accompaniment is so critical if we can ever access it, because when you dance with a live accompaniment, a pianist or the orchestra, you can feel the vibrations and the energy from the piano on that floor or from the symphony in that pit. Mm-hmm. And that gives you the energy that you have to replicate with that synthetic music at a much lower decibel. So I right. love anytime that anyone ever has the opportunity to dance with a live musician, please take it because you can hear the music and you can feel energized like holistically. It's amazing. But yes, if we, if we, if we have to resort to like the, the music from a recording, I love that you um, wrote the article on that protective wear. Stephen, what are you seeing as far as like social media, different things going on specifically like with social media? Right. So, I mean, definitely, I mean, the biggest thing by far is like the poses and the outfits, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, a child shouldn't be acting, shouldn't be doing poses. I mean, like 10-year-olds doing kissy faces, and, you know, things that are that uh, older adult thinks is sassy ends up being sexualizing. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. So that, that's, the, I think, most parents need to understand that when a dan- when you have a dancer that's being po- uh, po- posted on on the, any sort of site or any sort of like you know, picture source or social media or a disc for uh, for a studio of all, the, of all the dancers, whatever it is, if they're behaving like a like a person much older than they are, that is a problem. That does that puts a, a, a it puts a, a sexual imposition on them, whether they like it or not. Now, obviously, if you're acting older, like you know, she's dressed as an accountant or going to work, that's obviously you know, not many folks I'm more I'm worried about with that. But uh, but but usually it's like you know the, the 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 sassy attitude, the kissy face, the those kinds of things, the outfits too. The outfits are a big part of this. So. If the outfits are, and not necessarily revealing so much, because some of the outfits are very revealing because they're like, you know, crop top and bottoms, that's definitely revealing. But if it's like, you know, something where it's more, again, more sexualized, more like you would see a dancer on the Beyonce tour, for instance, again, an adult tour, right? We understand that though. But, you know, 13 year olds shouldn't be acting or dressing that way. Katie and I talk a lot about kind of like the line of appropriate and how that's so different for every parent. And something that I think Katie specifically, and and obviously Katie, you can speak for yourself, but kind of struggles with is, you know, my daughter is 12. Did she just turn 12? She did. Yeah. She had a birthday. Yesterday? Today? Yesterday. Yesterday. Yay. So she's kind, she's a preteen, but you know, like, do you allow your 12 year old to just be loose on the internet? You know? And so Katie and Katie can talk more about kind of how she handles social media, but the result is that the followers, the growth is slow. And the concern is that, 
you know, my kid is not getting picked for these opportunities because she doesn't have the Instagram following because I'm very careful to curate an honest, authentic following. And she's not getting the the opportunities that these other kids might be getting because she's not as marketable to this business because she's not going to be able to push out all this content to 5,000 people. Right. Yes. We did try to apply for a few things where our applications weren't eligible because we simply didn't have that following. And in some ways I'm like, well, maybe that brand isn't in alignment with our values. And so that wasn't the right fit. And I just let the cards fall where they may. But in other cases, I know that that is something that is in line with what we want and that we're just not there yet. And that's fine, too, because I think that trusting the process, if we're not there yet, we're not there yet. However, so I'll share what my rules are in my home. Mm -hmm. I have four. Only my oldest has a cell phone. And she gained that because she was traveling to summer intensives and flying solo. And so when she started doing her first solo flights for summer intensives, we purchased the phone and where she went for her intensive, they had a technology protocol where she called me when she landed. She could keep her phone charged in the nurse's office and call me once a day. So she wasn't missing out on that great like milestone of being away from home. She was actually I think pretty great. And so she's kept her phone since then. She got that, I guess, when she was nine. She's had it since then. We don't have any social media on her phone. And we have one of those plans where she's limited to like 20 contacts that she can call and she can text. And all of her calls and texts also go through my phone because we share a cloud account so I can see who she's talking to. So she does have an Instagram account. And I opened that Instagram account when she was at her first convention and received a scholarship from a really well-known dancer. And I thought it was so awesome that she recognized my little dancer and gave her this big scholarship that everyone was looking forward to getting. And I wanted to be able to celebrate that and also have Quinn get a present so that she could have that continued relationship with the artist who rewarded her. Since then, that artist has um, kind of fallen from grace in the dance community, Mm -hmm. which really frightens me because they had all of the right credentials. And I was concerned um, about my judgment at that point. But I, you know, looking back, it's just I did everything right because I didn't put my kid in a bad situation. But Mm -hmm. that was a good learning experience. So I keep all her social media on my phone and I manage it. And if she wants to see it, she has to use my phone and ask me. And then we do it together because as I work in college, I can see the effects that you're talking about with the dopamine and the, and the happiness issues. Um, Mm -hmm. It's so hard to feel happy because you have such a high threshold of, no, I want more likes. So I'm really careful about what we what we do and she'll slowly gain more and more autonomy and control but for now these are the baby steps we've taken well i think i, I mean i know it's hard to you know when you when that kind of thing happens it's really hard to uh not blame yourself initially when something falls from grace like that and you know full disclosure i was involved somewhat with the larry nasser situation the usa gymnastics doctor who committed all those crimes against so many different female uh, gymnasts and uh, dancer and some dancers too. 
And I got involved because I was speaking out against him, even though he was my friend since the mid nineties. And uh, once I started, once I started hearing all the different testimonies from all the different dancers, as the numbers grew, the, he, he was still trying to fight and save himself. Uh, and then when certain evidence came out, a whole bunch of folks came out against him and he, and he pled guilty. And that's why I realized, oh my gosh, he's been grooming me and all the other doctors I know and other, doc- and other coaches and trainers uh, and therapists all these years. And so, and all of us, all of us thought we knew the kind of person he was. All of us recommended him. I sent him patients that were, you know, I, he was an hour, 10 minutes away from me. So patients that would be, you know, from back and forth, we, you know, go see him, Larry, he's closer to you. And so we all felt terrible. And of course, and I, but I, you know, one of the reasons why I do the work I do with Nima is because I wanted to learn from that and take that experience and then use that for good and try to educate others about how he duped a medical community. I mean, he do he do he duped a ton of people and and had all these little clever ways of getting around being detected. And and most of them, I did so many different interviews with different reporters because there were, I was one of the only a few doctors who would speak out because I never worked with him in an office. I never had any sort of worry about that. And I'd known him and I talked to him a lot. So I knew that what he was being accused of was wrong. And but they're all like, how the hell does this guy do this in front of parents? Yeah. We're in the room, right, next to the girl. That's easy because he cultivated this, you know, this grand image of the Olympic doctor. And he bonded with his, you know, he all the, the different state, all the different signs of grooming, he hits every one of them, isolating them, the kid, the, the, you know, the person from the parent and and you know, showing intense interest in certain dance and certain gymnasts and showing uh favoritism, giving him little trinkets from the Olympics and those kinds of things. He did all these things to curry favor, having pictures on a wall of all the different gymnasts with their with their signatures, their autographs. Uh, and so the dance, the gymnast would sit there looking at this wall thinking, I want to be on that wall. Look at all these famous gymnasts here. I want to be there too. So I, I want this guy to like me. So it's so easy. And it was very cathartic with all the, everybody gave their testimony because, you know, he, he pled guilty. And that's what all of us realized. Oh my gosh, this is, we were duped. And so the best thing you can do is what you've been doing. You realize that nothing bad happened. You're, you're involved. I think that being involved is very important. Uh, even when they're flying solo, you're you know monitoring all the, my my daughter. She's 20 now and she's in college, but you know we should always when she was in, at home here all the time. All of our social we're on her social media. We should be able to see all of it because there should be anything on there that we can't see. And believe me, we don't care to follow your your social media. We don't care to follow your Snapchat. It's very boring to me. <laughs> it's not like I want to sit there and read all her stuff. But if there's a problem or someone's stalking her or someone is, you know, trying to get her to send her pictures and that type of stuff, I want her to feel comfortable with us and have us have an open relationship enough with her to have her tell us about these things. If I got so like in her face about like social media is evil, stop this, she'll just do it behind my back and never tell me. And then something bad will happen. They'll feel horrible. I think you're doing the right thing, but it's hard. I mean, this is hard. I mean, this building a brand thing with dancers. So challenging, so difficult. And the fact that they're choosing people based on that is telling you what they want. These conventions want dancers that can bring eyeballs, which gives them money in advertising and people coming to their conventions. It's all about, from their perspective, money. We have all these different dancers with all these people that follow them, then they're going to follow my convention. And therefore, my convention looks bigger. I can charge more money. 
And that's where I, it's the basis of all this is money. And it's, you know, it's very difficult. And I see it with dance brands and I, you know, I'm not throwing shade on any brand. I'm not going to mention any by name, but you know, there's been a couple big brands and I see very little kids and very little clothing doing very mature posing to be recognized I- by these brands. You know, I think everybody has their line of what they're comfortable with, but I do think that it's making these dancers vulnerable in a way that like when I was growing up, we we just weren't exposed to that as much. Right. You feel you have to do it, right? I got I'm 12 years old, but these outfits are, are age inappropriate. They're yeah. 16 year old type of 17 year old outfits, 18 year old outfits, 19. That's what you're trying to display is I mean, no 12 year old understands what they're doing when they're showing, you know, doing a sassy pose and and looking suggestive to come hither look and those kinds of things. They don't understand that. But they understand that people may give them gratification for it, may give them accolades and give them positive reinforcement for it. And that becomes the issue. And so if we reward that, that becomes a problem. And these brands, yeah, these uh, these dance brands that again, they they're trying to sell their products. They're trying to get, they're trying to sell their presence. And they need people who have presence out there to it's it's transit property. Your people follow you and you follow me and you're part of me. Therefore your people follow you and me. And therefore I can make more money. And what's so crazy about it is that age group is also very vulnerable for well my friends doing it and this other friends doing it and well these two friends are doing it. Well this friend wants to do it and then all of a sudden we're all buying into it. And Mm -hmm. then it's just like amplified and then we're all in our skimpy costumes doing I mean, you know, that is a really, that is the demographic that has the most ad spend power. Mm-hmm. It's, it's crazy. I always talk about that frontal lobe development when my mm-hmm. students come to the college counseling center and they're, you know, so a lot of them will like look back at what they did and they're like, you know, why did I do that? Or like, you know, they'll have regret, they'll have shame or we'll process guilt They'll have grief, you know, and a lot of ways to really like normalize that is to talk about their brain development. Their frontal lobes aren't typically even formed fully until they're at least 21 years old. And for males that, you know, are born uh, male, that's even later. If at all. I like that, Dr. K. But Yes. And I think our job as dance parents, as dance peoples, as part of this community is to, you know, like you said, Stephen, like, you know, we're not going to go in there and be like, social media is bad. You're going to hold more sand with an opened palm than you are with a closed fist. And that's how I like to treat social media with my, with my students, with my family, like, you know, I'm guiding them. Like, You don't Mm -hmm. have all of the tools in your toolbox. Neither do I, but I do have a frontal lobe and I do have some experience and we can navigate this together. And so I do like that when you think, when you say sassy poses, I'm like, but Mm -hmm. started on the music choices because that is a whole nother can of worms that drives me nuts. But what's playing in your kid's head hour after hour after hour like those lyrics matter what they're singing along to matters what they're saying like please stop putting angsty songs on an eight-year-old but we'll have to do song choice and and costume choice another time well quick thing about the song choice a great example was uh a parent was was cognizant enough to ask uh part of our group you know what do you think about 
choreography to the song that don't impress me much by Shania Twain. And because it's a cute song and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a bouncy song, but the lyrics are about Shania trying to find a guy to go to bed with at night. I mean, it's right in the lyrics. Uh, that won't keep me warm in the middle of the night. It's like, yo, no, 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 no. That's not, you know, it sounds cute for part of it, but then you listen to like the chorus. It's like, no, no, she's trying to go to bed with somebody. And she wants to go to bed with somebody who looks like Brad Pitt or <laughs> someone else. So like, it's just being aware of those things. And so this parent was like, you know, the sounds cute and bouncy, but like, is this appropriate? And like, we're all like, no, no, no. The lyrics are clearly not. So and then, and, you know, it's funny too, a lot of dance or sorry, a lot of musicians who make music that dancers use are making cleaner versions, a second, a second copy of that or their own songs, because they recognize that a lot of folks like their music in these realms. And so they're like, well, I want to sell it to my base audience, but then I'll actually make a version. There was, you know, that song by CeeLo Green, it was uh, Forget You. Well, the original version was not forget you it was a different f word and they realized that wait a minute a lot of folks love this song i better make a different version so that folks can listen to it their you know families and parents and such so hopefully you know awareness of songs and music choices would be very helpful but again you know I, you would think that the parent would know that song would not be appropriate but it just takes framing in a different context for them to understand that no it's not Stephen, one of the things I think that you pointed out that really helped me when we were talking about the situations of grooming with people in power positions and that disparity in power mm-hmm. that I think is a really great takeaway that I just want to like make full circle and make sure that you don't have anything to clarify. So going back as a coach, going back as a parent, some of the takeaways I got from your message and your experience was no matter how well-known they are, no matter how powerful or smart or how many things they have on the wall, be in the room, that things can happen even in the room where we don't necessarily know it's abuse. It can be in a photo shoot where uh, the photographer doesn't realize that it is abuse for asking someone to hold a backbend for that long. It can be in an exam where the doctor might know it is abuse, but a parent doesn't know better. The athlete might not know better. So don't beat yourself up, but I continue to ask questions. Why is that necessary? What are we looking for? And then in my situation where, you know, a very esteemed dancer was taking note, I should be like aware in the future if they're playing favorites, if they're being given special treatment, if they're being sequestered and secluded from the big group. If that's commonplace as an award or if that's a special award, if that's given out at other competitions or if it was just given to my dancer and that uh-huh. if I'm going to cultivate a relationship that I'm in charge as the momager or as the coach, that they're not tr- directly communicating with my kid and that if they do meet my kid, I stay in the room at all times. And know that you can also be groomed because parents want their kids to have these opportunities. Parents Parents sometimes want their kids' picture on that wall. Parents want their kids to be favored. And I see that I have heard personal stories more from the cheer world about things that were just looked over because parents wanted their kid to have that lead flyer. You know, Mm -hmm. you can also be duped. And that's scary. (laughs) 
Well, the biggest thing to keep in mind is that, so we have research that supports this concept that those who suffer sexual abuse, uh, psychological abuse, uh, sexual violence, sexual psychological violence, emotional violence, will have mental health problems as adults. As if you have that as a child, these things happen to you, you have a much, much higher probability of having mental health disorders as an adult. And, and so these things matter. These little things matter. They're not just you know easy things to blow off. Uh, Wade Robeson was one of the dancers that was featured in the uh, documentary Leaving Neverland, uh, who uh, one of the two dancers who uh, reported their abuse uh, from Michael Jackson. And what was st- was really interesting in that show was about the stories about how the mom would be in the front row when Wade got a chance to dance with Michael Jackson on stage at six years old. And she would be helping him remember the moves and grabbing her crotch and pointing down and like doing the hip thrust like Michael Jackson would do as a reminder to here's what you need to do on stage because people on the audience were loving it. And when you watch the show, you're like, oh my gosh, how in the world did this parent let this happen? But then again, they were groomed and it's Michael Jackson and they have all these, this entourage and have all these people there. So, so I think that's the, you know, we can all be, you know, it's, the awareness and bringing this into the light is what helps this not happening in the future. It's understood that the mom is going to be there for the photo shoot. It's understood that, you know, the photographer is not going to follow a dancer directly on Instagram or ha- or invite that dancer to follow them directly. That's just not what you do. You know, this is not appropriate. And basically talking about this more and more, is going to help people in the future not have these kind of problems happen to them. It's going to be hard to extinguish it, of course, but again, the more we work towards this, then these other cases will fall by the wayside and and people and the dancers will be more protected. The parents, again, the parents regret. And I mean, some of the parents I talked to whose daughters go through this, they're just, they can't let it go. They're, they feel they feel they let their daughters down and it's, and it's a terrible thing to live with. And it's really heartbreaking because it affects their relationship. In the future, as you know, when the daughter becomes 20, 30, 40 years old, it, it, it lives there with them. It, both both ends suffer in that relationship. So uh, I think what we're doing, we got, what you guys are doing, what you are doing in this podcast and what you've been doing on your podcast before me is a big part of this. It's great. You're, you're doing amazing work on this. And I think I commend you for that because this is the kind of thing that keeps on, keeps the conversation going. You know, we're not mm-hmm. saying that every single male, male white photographer is going to abuse your daughter and female photographers can do the same thing. So it's not just male, but again, not everybody's going to do that, but if we talk about this, then there's less, uh, it's just not, you just don't do these things and it becomes more accepted, more understood, and then we can move on. Well, and I know, like I was dancing, I started in 1988, I was three, things were different, you know, and it, it was real in that time, it was real cutesy to have tiny people and fringe and ta- it was like, oh, it's cute. Cause look how cute they are. It's like a little grown up person, but she's four. Mm-hmm. And nobody, it was really, honestly, it was innocent in their mind. And I remember, and I tell my wife about this all the time. We did this dance to the Daisy Duke song. Look at those girls in the Daisy Dukes. Y'all remember that one? I was like eight. We had, thankfully, we had these leotards with little jean shorts. So at least our midriffs were whatever. And we had this very conservative family that were like, eh, we're not sure about this one. You know, and they were... They were 
shamed by all the other dance parents like oh they're just playing a part oh it's just it's harmless it's innocent it's whatever but so mm-hmm. i think that we have to keep in mind that it the intent the the bad intent doesn't always come from the teacher the parent the photographer it could be accident huh. like it could be unintentional but then when you put that out on social media you're just opening a door that shouldn't right. be opened correct yep that way the way that's the way it's always been is one of my favorite like myth busters especially in dance because like we've been talking about throughout this podcast is that right now the tide is changing and the way it's always been is not the golden standard and that we can we can take a step back and say well why has it always been that way and is that best practice now if anyone has a mental health concern or talking about uh, and listening to any of these topics tonight brought up anything that they'd like to discuss. 988 is a great national resource for mental health support. And I'd like to also, Whitney, I'll be putting some other resources if anyone wants to be able to process anything that might have come up for them while listening to this podcast. And I think maybe we'll do a little trigger warning recording at the front. And we're going to have Steven back. So we, as we get into our, our series on conventions and all that sort of things, we're going to have Steven back and we're going to be talking about, you know, kind of how to keep your dancer safe and all of these things, what to look for as parents. And, and some of the things that Katie was just mentioning, we'll go ahead and share out, but we will be talking about in more depth uh, in the future. So yeah, thank you. Well, we flew through a lot of stuff. We covered a lot of ground. We did. And, you know, I think that, my goal with the podcast and for anybody listening is that I want people to, to not feel like, well, everybody in my studio is okay. Is it just me? Do I have, am I sensitive? Am I a snowflake? Am I a millennial? You know, all the shaming that people do for people that are, they're saying like, yeah, I don't know about that song, that costume, that content, that picture, that, you know, I want them to know that like, there are other people that are also saying, I need help navigating this new social sphere and I am just not comfortable with these things. And like, that's just okay. Well, I was just going to say that. I think that what you're, the work you two are doing with this podcast is great. I, I appreciate you having me on today and, and then having me on in the future. I would love to do that. I just, I think that, you know, you mentioned the snowflake thing. I think that's a, that's a really good thing because I think the new generation, I've been seeing more and more people speaking out about mental health issues that they have. And feeling, and they realize that them speaking out is helping others speak out more and making people feel more inclusive uh, and, uh, and more uh, included in the this group of people that are suffering from this. And it's okay to talk about it because I think that's what's so neat about this new generation. They are more aware of this and they're free to speak out about it and, and speak their, their minds about it. It's very, it's very helpful just to shed light, shine light into these areas. I mean, one of the organizations that talks about this all the time is darkness into light. And this is important uh, to bring all this into light because that's how these bad things uh, will happen less often. Yeah. Oh, I love that. You just reminded me of my favorite poem by Marianne Williamson, where she was like, who are you to play small by you, uh, you know, being light by stepping into your power, you give others permission to mm-hmm. do so well. So like that we're giving the space for everyone 
to, if they don't have it in their four brick and mortar walls, they do have it in this community, this space. We did cover a lot of ground today. And so I would love to hear where our listeners would like us to go when we're resetting the agenda for the next couple series. Info at WhitneyCollinsPhotography.com or you can find any one of us on Instagram now that we just talked about the dangers of social media. I am Katie Hughes at Turning Point Consultants. And then we have Whitney Collins. Yeah, and I'm at Whitney Collins Photography. And I am still, I my page is not personal. It's just my business page. And I run it kind of like I did my classroom. So we uh, keep it very clean. And I know my audience is mostly dancers. So I keep it very dancer centric and uh, appropriate. <laughs> And my Instagram is my name and it's a professional uh, page as well. So I have, I have photog- photography on there and other, and we, I'm also co-host of a podcast for athletes and the arts. So I have stuff on there as well for that. So, uh, but yeah, anybody ever has a question, wants to reach out, out, please feel free. Love that. Well, I am just so grateful that we had this, this meeting, this podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. Thank you for tuning in to Dance Through the Lens. We hope you enjoyed this episode and found valuable insights to support your dancer's journey. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please reach out. You can leave us a message at 912-376-9184 or email us at hello at WhitneyCollinsPhotography.com. We'll be back next week with more advice, stories, and inspiration to keep you and your dancer moving forward.